You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. All right. So good morning. Oh, wow. Okay. Responsive church today. Nice. You guys came to, came to come to church. I like it. So for those of you that have not been with us, especially last Sunday, um, we are in a new study, study of 1 Timothy. Um, and so uh, last week, Josh did an awesome job of kind of introducing 1 Timothy for us, kind of giving us an idea of, of where we're headed. What, what are we about to learn in this letter that Paul the Apostle has written to his protege, Timothy? Um, so we're coming out of Galatians we're pretty used to Paul by this point. Paul has been a, a, a common trend in some of the teachings we've had these past several months. But we're getting another look at Paul a little bit and how he's addressing Timothy, his pastoral ministry, and the church of Ephesus. Okay, so we have a lot of kind of coming in grasp here. But you're going to see some common trends in this book because people are people and people really don't change that much. We all love to just do the same dumb things over and over again. But then on top of that, too, we're going to get a little bit deeper look in the gospel and who God is, who we are in that equation, um, and how to do ministry together. And so we are titling this letter that, that Paul has written to Timothy, we're titling this book Blueprints of a Gospel-Centered Church, because that's ultimately what Paul is writing here. He's saying, I want you to understand this is how we operate. This is how it's meant to go. This is how we're meant to do this well efficiently. So not only do we grow in Christ together, but also we can share the gospel together. And so we're on mission together as one body. And so going through that, we're going to be kind of going a little bit deeper and finishing out chapter one this morning and understanding kind of where Paul's headed. So the scripture we are going to cover this morning, we see Paul expound on the warning of false teaching. All right, I don't know what that was. Um, so in Josh's sermon last week, we went through the first seven verses of chapter one. In that, we saw a couple things. First, the context of the letter. Who are we talking to? What are we doing? Why are we here? I think that's just going to keep happening through this whole thing, so buckle up. Um, and then a charge made to Timothy. And we see that later in the book, but we see this charge that he makes to Timothy, and this charge is, this is how we're supposed to operate. Here are the blueprints. This is what we're supposed to be doing as a gospel-centered church because so easily we can fall to the wayside. We can get focused on the wrong thing. We can get focused on the bad things, and this church no longer is effective. This church is no longer gospel-centered. And another charge he gives to Timothy, too, is stay where you're at. Hold fast. Keep fighting the good fight because Timothy's losing some steam. Timothy's like, it is not easy here, Paul. A lot of people are kind of giving me some, some backlash. There's a lot of false teaching. It is not an easy place to do ministry. I think it's my face. It might be my face. Let's see if it happens now. So sorry. But there is a lot of false teaching. It's not an easy place to do ministry. Paul, I'm getting discouraged. And Paul's saying, hold fast. You're doing well. God is with you. It is not you, Timothy. It is the Holy Spirit. And so we see that charge. And then finally, uh, uh, maybe it's still my face. I don't know. Competing doctrine in Ephesus. So there's a lot of false teaching. Same as when we saw in Galatians. 
seeing it again. Not the same type of false teaching per se, but still that the gospel is not enough. There's other things. The gospel's not true. What have you. It's false teaching. And so as we work through this remainder of chapter 1, Paul lays out the blueprint for our foundation. What is the gospel? Because if we don't know what the gospel is, how can we be gospel-centered, right? We need to have that blueprint, right? And so, as believers, as members of the body of Christ, we need this foundation, and we need to know how we sit in it, why we need it, why it's important. So, that's where we're going to be. So, if you'll open up your Bible, uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to be going through 8 through the rest of the chapter, through verse 20. So, if you'll turn with me there, and if you will stand up, we're going to read this together. Forrest just texted me and said, it's definitely your face. (laughs) Thank you, Forrest, for keeping me humble. All right, let's read it together. So starting in verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which we have been entrusted. I thank him who has been given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received a mercy because I hadn't acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, we just pray that if anyone here does not know you, does not know the loving salvation and grace that comes from you. Lord, we just pray today is that day of salvation. We also pray for the Christians in this room here that we just may grow from this word, Lord, that you may soften our hearts, open our ears, and we may grow deeper in our relationship with you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for everything you've given us. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So we have a lot to unpack. A good bit of scripture here. Um, But we're going to be kind of breaking it up. We're going to be working our way through it. So the first thing we want to look at is right where we start in verse 8. And so we're going to be going through kind of verse 8 through 11. But this is, a gospel is needed. Okay, so we're going to have three points this morning, three kind of sections we're going to work through. But the first one is, a gospel is needed. And so, first thing we see from Paul. Now, he's coming out of scripture where he's talking about people who are false teachers. These false teachers are teaching with the law, and they're using the law to justify their claims. 
They're saying, well, the law says this, so you really need to be keeping this. Same as in Galatians. We remember this. You need to be circumcised if you want to be saved in Christ. Christ plus something else. And Paul in Galatians said, no, it's just Christ. Christ's salvation sacrifice is enough. But here we're seeing again, just in a different light, and Paul again is saying, the law is good. Many of them are saying, Paul says the law is not important. He just says this, this Christ Jesus guy is all that's important. He goes, no, the law is good. It's important. We need the law, but you're using it incorrectly. He says the people that even teach the law don't even know the law they're teaching. Again, he says this. And so immediately in verse 8, I don't know why I keep doing this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Immediately he makes that claim. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So that poses a question. What does it mean to use the law lawfully? How do I do that? And we know that it's in Scripture. Because he says the law is good if you use it lawfully. Lawfully means that we are to take the word of God as a whole. We are to take the word of God and understand that the word of God interprets itself. Now, if I come over here and I take one little scripture... And I would come to you with that scripture, and I'd say, look here, this scripture says this, you need to be doing this. But then when you look at the context of the whole word of God, that scripture probably means something very different. It's so dangerous to parcel up the word, parcel up the Bible, make it like a buffet, take what we like, but then leave what we don't like. Very often you see people will take all the good stuff, but anything that's just negative, or more than anything, it's offensive, they leave to the wayside. God is love. It's just heaven, man. And never talk about that there is a hell and there is damnation. That there is a price to your sin. Or they go the opposite route and they seek control. And they say, you're going to do what I tell you to do because this is what the word of God says. And they don't even know what they're speaking of because they're not even looking at it in context. There is a lawful way to use the law and the word of God, and it is holistically as the word of God. But not only that, letting scripture interpret scripture. I can sit here and tell you all I want to about the Bible and what I think, but ultimately the Bible explains itself. And it does not stand contrary to the character and who God is. It is scripture. Scripture is alive. It is God. And so, we need to understand, Paul is immediately saying the law is a good thing, but there's a way to do it that honors God and is lawful. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Psalm 19, 7-10, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Paul wants the reader, us, the, those at, uh, with 1 Timothy, he wants them to understand, I'm not rejecting the law. The law is a good thing. But the law is not meant to save you, Christian. The law was never meant to save you. The law is meant to show you that you need a Savior. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The law is a diagnostic tool. When you look at the law, it tells you, you are broken, you are sinful, and you need a Savior can't do it on your own and then he continues on he says now we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully understanding this 
The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And then Barry carries on. And he goes through a long list of, of just sinful behavior. But we understand that the law is not laid down for the righteous and spiritually boastful person. The law is not laid down so that you can look at it and go, man, I'm so good. I follow that law to a T. I am perfect. Man, it's all about me. I'm good. I'm earning my way to heaven. No. The law is laid down for the broken one. That looks at it and says, I can't do it. I'm sinful. I'm wicked. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And that's every one of us here today. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one here can look at the law honestly, lawfully, and look at it and say, I'm good, I'm broken, and I need a Savior. And he says this continuing on. He gives us all of these, these, these sins and these stances. It just goes on a long just, just rant of the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, those who strike their mothers and fathers, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And what's interesting is Paul kind of does a little flex here. He's referencing straight back to the Ten Commandments in this list. The lawless and disobedient, you shall have no other gods before me. Ungodly and sinners, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Do not make yourself an idol or anything else of an idol. Unholy and profane, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain and remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. You shall not strike your mothers and fathers. Honor your mother and father. Murderers, you shall not murder. Sexually immoral, you shall not commit adultery. Enslavers, you shall not steal. Liars and perjurers shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Paul is using the law in this exact moment and saying, look, you fall somewhere in this. Now, you may not be it directly. You may have not murdered someone. But I hope, I mean, I do. Looking at this, I see myself somewhere in it. I have committed some of these sins. I have fallen short again and again. We all find ourselves in this list somewhere along the way. And Paul is saying, I'm referring to the law here. The law is here to show you you're a sinner and you need a Savior. The law is here to diagnose the problem. And the problem is you can't do it. If it's all on you, it's broken and it's sinful. We need someone who can make this sacrifice, but we can't. We need to understand this before we can ever understand the gospel. Because if you don't understand your need for the gospel, what does the gospel even mean? You don't understand the gospel unless you know how gracious and merciful he is that he even sent his son to save us out of this. If you don't understand the need for the gospel, you're going to miss out on the grace and power it brings. Romans 8.3 tells us, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so we see that there is a gospel that is needed for us this morning. If you're not in Christ and you look at the law and the law tells you you can't do it, you're not good enough, it's offensive and that's okay. It's supposed to be offensive. 
It's not here to coddle you. It's here to tell you you need a Savior because time's running out. You may not get tomorrow. And so looking at the law, it tells us this is good and this is given by God, but it's given by God for a reason because there's one to come. And now there is one who has come. He died on a cross for you and he saved you. There's salvation waiting for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to buy it. It's already bought by his blood. You just have to accept it. Let's move on. We're going to verse 12. This one is the gospel saved. So we have a gospel as needed. Now we have a gospel that saves. Amen? And I love what Paul does here. You immediately see Paul, who kind of is coming a little hot. He's like, this and this and this and this, just going on a little rant. And then immediately he takes a stance of humility. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formally, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Paul immediately comes out of this long list of sin and he says, I thank him that he saved me and he judged me faithfully because I was those things. I was sinful. I was broken. And he judged me because he should have judged me. He judged me rightly. He judged me faithfully. And in that judgment, he's made me clean and he has made me a servant. I'm so thankful for it. Paul does not say, how great am I? And he could have said it. Paul was a hot shot. I mean, he was an amazing man of God. He had an amazing ministry. He had all the pomp and circumstance to sit here and say, I'm a good pastor. I'm a good minister. I'm a good missionary. But he didn't. Every chance he got, he said, I'm just thankful that he chose me. I'm just thankful that he blessed me with the strength to get up this morning and do the ministry that he gives me power to do. Paul has this immediate stance of reverence and humility. And it's something we can learn from. Because how often do we hear in, in today's society, you got it in you. Just pull yourself up from your bootstraps and get it done, man. Or you hear, I was in a bad place, but man, look how far I've come. I started from the bottom, now I'm here. I'm amazing. I did a good job. I am wonderful. Me, 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 me. I did it, I did it, I did it. And you constantly hear that testimony. I did it. I made it. I made it to the mountaintop. I, I achieved this amazing feat. And it's, it's not bad. Kudos to you. But God holds our very life in his hands. He gives us the breath in our lungs. Never do you hear, man, I, I'm just so thankful that he gave me the ability to do it. That he gave me the strength to rise up out of my bed this morning and, and gave me breath in my lungs and just gave me the, the mind and the energy to do the thing I needed to do. How gracious is he that he just he sustained me. He walked me through it. He held my hand. Solomon says, I'm like a child. I, I don't even know how to go through the door of a house without God. God never corrects a lowly view of self. He says, no, you, you, you aren't good enough. You are broken. You, you can't do it. But I'm your God. I will do it for you. I will sustain you. I will pick you up. I will carry you through. You see that in Moses. Moses said, God, I, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I can't go to Pharaoh and be the spokesperson for the Israelites. I'm literally the worst person you could have chosen. And what does God say? God doesn't say, now Moses, don't talk about yourself like that. No, he says, no, you are, but I'm your God. I'll go. And Paul has that same stance. 
I'm just thankful for him. He sustained me. He gave me the very strength in my bones. And he judged me, and he judged me faithful because I deserved that judgment. But in that judgment, there was deep mercy and grace and salvation. I never have to see hell. I have an eternity waiting for me because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that's for you this morning, Christian. You are saved. You have the Holy Spirit working in you. Same as Paul. And I just, it's an amazing thing, just immediately coming into that. I thank him who has given me strength. For I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed me for the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Paul immediately comes in with his testimony, and I love it. A testimony of humility, but a testimony. And if you don't know Paul's history, it is a history to know. And we've talked about it here. We've talked about it in Galatians. We're not going to dwell on it too crazy. But Paul shares his testimony many times in the New Testament. And it's powerful every time he does it. I love it when he shares his testimony and of his former conduct. And for those of you who don't know, a quick grasp of Paul's history, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he was, he was in it. He persecuted and convicted Christians, threatened to arrest them, and ultimately kill them if they did not blaspheme Christ's very name. This is who's talking right now. The man who, who has seen the very people he loves and serves killed by his own hand. It's a tough thing to, to grapple with. And Paul is sitting here and saying, the fact that he even chose me is gracious, just grace upon grace. The fact that he uses me, uses me for his ministry. He's like, you can have this too. He says, I am an example of it. He says, quit sitting here and thinking you're not good enough. I am not good enough. If anybody isn't good enough, it's me, Paul. And Paul says, go, serve God, trust in God, because it is real. It is true, and I am evidence of it. Your testimony is one of the powerful things you have at your disposal, Christian. You can go to somebody, you can give them the objective data and say, well, they found this in archaeological finds, or this and this, or the flood really happened this year. That's great, but it's white noise in the end of it. What's really great is when you go to somebody and saying, this was me before, and this is me now, and I'm a different person. I'm not what I was. I'm not the old man. I'm a new man. And yes, I have a flesh. And yes, it's a battle daily. But God, I love them. And I want to serve them. I want to pursue them. There's a fire in me that was not there before. You are evidence of God's work in your life. Your testimony is evidence of the graciousness and goodness of God. And how rarely do we use it? I know I don't use it enough. Taking people to scripture is great. Talking to them about the facts and the, the tips and tricks and all the stuff is great, but at the end of the day, sharing your testimony is a beautiful and powerful thing. And Paul is showing us the evidence here. And what is Paul's testimony? What does it tell us? It tells us that the thought, I'm too far gone, I have sinned too much, I am too dirty for God to save me is an utter lie. It's a complete lie. And I would, I would bet that all of us have had that thought some point in our life, maybe still to this day, that you have done too much, you have gone too far, you are too broken for God to use you or save you, and that is a complete lie. Because if you're too far gone, 
What was Paul? A man who killed Christians. Paul is evidence that you cannot be too far from God's salvation. Paul is evidence of God's goodness and graciousness. And I love that Paul, who is arguably the front runner of our faith, he is one of the greatest missionaries our faith has ever known, is also the front runner of the sinner. That's an interesting mindset to have. Because you see, as he comes down, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If you look at other, uh, uh, in the NKJV, it's I'm the chief of sinners. This is the foremost, the chief of sinners talking, and he is one of the greatest missionaries our faith has known. That shows you the power of the Holy Spirit. That shows you the power of God's salvation and his gospel. Paul says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever shall believe in him shall have everlasting life. I love John 3.17 even more. For he did not send his son to condemn the world, but to what? Save it. Paul did a lot of bad stuff. And Newsflash, we were just as bad. We've all, we're all bad. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. But it's okay. But the thing about Paul's stance and his comment saying, I'm the foremost of sinners, I'm the chief of sinners, he does not come to this by an external means. He says this because of an internal reflection. He does not look around and say, man, I'm worse than him, or I'm not as bad as him. No, he is looking and comparing himself to the holiness of God He's the chief of sinners. I compare myself to the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. I'm far gone. And if it's just me, I'm broken. And that's what Paul is doing here. And it's an example that we can learn from. Is that we can sit here and we can compare each other to each other. We can compare to the person down the street. We can compare to the person at work. All you want to do all day long, and you can justify your faith. You can justify who you are. You can say, oh, I'm not that bad. That's okay. But at the end of the day, you're going to be compared to the holiness of God. And you'll be found lacking. You will. And how great is it that he sent his son, that when we stand before God, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness. He sees his sacrifice. He does not see our sin anymore. We're no longer orphan. We are child of God under the salvation of Jesus Christ. He is the chief of sinners, not because he compares himself, but because he sees his own depravity. He says, I need a savior. Exactly what the law tells you. But Paul doesn't sit in that. Paul doesn't say, I can't do anything. I'm useless. No, he says, I'm, I have a Holy Spirit in me, and I serve the living God. I do not have a spirit of fear. Who can stand against me? Paul is evidence that the Holy Spirit moves and empowers you. And that's going to be our next point. The gospel that empowers. And as we come into this gospel is what empowers us, you see Paul's stance as he transitioned into this, this verse 18. And why did Paul get saved? Why, what is Paul's stance when he says, I've been saved by Christ? Not because 
so I can go around and do awesome things and I can be praised for it. No, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, I am a tool in this great kingdom of God. God saved me for his glory, for his praise. I was a sinner, I was broken, I was lost, and God picked me out to save me so that he may show evidence that he is a great and glorious God and he can do anything, even a broken and sinful man like me. That's the same for all of us. You are an amazing testimony evidence of the graciousness of God, of his mercy and of his loving kindness. And in that gospel, it empowers you, Christian. The Holy Spirit given to you empowers you. And Paul shifts that focus, and he drives into this point with a charge to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may, you may wage the good warfare. Paul calls Timothy and us, as we read this letter, to fight the good fight. Fight it because it is worth fighting. Don't run away. Don't back out. Don't give up just because it's hard. Ministry's going to be hard. It, there's no way around it. you got a lot of broken people, and we're trying to do everything we can to get to heaven and to serve God. It's not going to be a clean picture all the time. But the thing about it is Paul is saying, run your race and do it well. Not for the prize you get, not for the, the, the praise you get during it, but because you have been saved by much. I don't work for salvation. Because I'm saved, I work. Because of the graciousness of God, I am, I am motivated to serve him because he loved me even when I was still a sinner. Then Paul kind of shifts. It's, it's a great moment, holding faith and a good conscience, but then he immediately shifts that focus to Manius and Alexander, two examples of those who have shipwrecked their faith. And then within that, Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn, learn not to blaspheme. What Paul is saying here is they were disciplined. That ultimately they were no longer part of the faith. I'm not going to hold you here. I'm not going to force you to do this because that's not the gospel. But we see from some sources, especially Hymenius, because that's a pretty unique name. Alexander is a pretty common name, so we're not too sure. But we see that they were false teachers. And Paul went and, and disciplined them in that. And ultimately, that discipline came out with they didn't want any part of it, and they left. But Paul offers a sobering clarity that we need to understand, and is that to throw this faith to the wayside, this faith has been gifted to you, it will lead to your downfall. And the church must discipline against sin. Now, we need to understand, when it comes to the body of Christ, preaching against sin is necessary. Because if we're not preaching against sin, if we're not trying to pursue holiness, what are we doing? But the thing about it is, we can preach against sin all day long if we're not held accountable and actually removing sin we're wasting time, and we're just as broken as if we weren't preaching against sin. And the thing about it is if we do not hold each other accountable and work to remove sin from our lives, 
it's ultimately going to take over the church. And we've seen it happen in some regards in this country. But I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that if you have sin, you're not allowed in the church. That's not at all what I'm saying. If that was the case, none of us would be here. We're all sinful people. We all need the gospel. But I'm saying that the day we fall complacent and apathetic toward our sin is the day we shipwreck ourselves. The day we look at our sin and say, it's not a big deal, it'll figure itself out, is the moment you've lost. The moment you stop striving for the, for the image of Christ. The moment you look at your sin and say, whatever. It's a dangerous place to be. And this is not a call for church to be trigger happy with discipline. I want you to understand, if you're in sin, that's okay. But let's get out of it. Let's do the work to pursue righteousness with Christ and holiness. But this is also not a, a free pass to just discipline every little thing you see. That's not at all what he's saying here. But rather, we must proceed forward, hold each other accountable, but understand that it's ongoing repentance. That every day we repent for our sin. Every day we're going to fall short, and that's okay. But ongoing repentance, continual accountability, being in church community, that's how we kill sin. And each one of us, as a Christian this morning, has the obligation to turn from sin daily. We don't just kick this bad habit and then it's over with. Now, you may, it may not have a hold on you like it did before, and, and praise God for that. But you're still broken. You're not home yet. You still have your flesh. And every day, we must wake up and renew our mind with this gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day, we wake up and pursue Christ, not flesh. When you wake up, it's a conscious effort to say, I'm going to pursue the things that glorify and honor God, and I'm going to take away the things that dishonor Him. And when you fail, when you mess up, the work's already finished. You have every right to come to God and say, Lord, forgive me, and you're forgiven. And you have a church family that will come around you and love you and support you, but we're not going to let you sit there. We're going to spur you on and say, we have, we have work to do. We can sit here and be in this habitual sin all day long, but you will be ineffective for the kingdom. And that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. It's so easy for Satan to sit here and put you in a place of complacency and, ap and just being apathetic. Because ultimately, you can live there your entire life and nothing ever be done about it but you will never be effective for the kingdom of God. Now, mind you, I'm not saying you're not saved. There is justification, but then there's sanctification. But I, I, I'm telling you, take a look at yourself. Be quick to call out your sin. Call it for what it is. Don't sit here and try to justify it. Just call it for what it is. It's sin. It's okay. You got sin. But you have the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the body of Christ to get rid of it. To move on from it. How great would it be if, if that was the stance of this nation? 
not everybody in it, but just the church in and of itself, that we are a church that removes sin. And we do it in a loving way, but we do it in an effective way. We preach against sin, but we don't just say lofty words, but we actually do the work to do it. We don't sit here and we don't beat you down and tell you you're a terrible person and you're not, you're not the image of a Christian we want you to be, but we actually come to you and say, how can we help you? How, how can we call you out of it? How can we encourage you in Christ to not run to the broken thing anymore? We give up this beautiful, precious, precious gospel for the idol made out of clay. We throw the most beautiful gift in the world away and we run to just the scraps. We understand how precious and how empowering this gospel is when we understand the need for it. And that's what Paul is giving us here as we finish out this chapter of 1 Timothy. And so we're going to close here. And as we close, I, I want to challenge you if you are not in Christ this morning, you need the gospel. You have fallen short, and that is okay. But I can't promise you that you'll have tomorrow. I can't promise you that you'll have the rest of today. There is no better day than today to be saved by Jesus Christ. But if you are in Christ, for the Christian this morning, are you living in complacency? Are you living in a place of just apathetic thought? Where I just don't really care about my sin? Or maybe there is habitual sin and you know it's there, but you're not doing anything about it. You're just letting it persist. You're letting it grow. Because I'm here to tell you, not me, but the Word of God says it will ruin you. It will shipwreck you. It will take your joy. It will rob you of the very life you have. Get rid of it. Don't waste time. You don't have to feel scared, and you don't have to live in the darkness. Bring it to the light. Bring it to your brothers and sisters in Christ and expose it. And in that exposing of sin, it has a whole lot less power on you. And I promise you, this is a place that you can do it where you're not going to be met with criticism. You're going to be met with love and mercy. Because we're all there. We've all fallen short. Everyone is on a level playing here at Risen Life. And if we're not, we need to correct that. And so I want you to bow your heads. We're going to close with prayer. And I just want this time to be a time that if you have unrepentant sin, please repent of it. Call it for what it is. If you don't know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, please Come talk to me, come talk to Stephen, Josh, anybody here. So that way we may help you in that and walk you through it. Please don't leave this place this morning without knowing the amazing and loving grace of Jesus Christ. A grace that saved Paul, that saved me, and that can save you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, Father, we love you and we thank you for everything you've given us. We thank you for your son Jesus and that even in the midst of our sin, you humbled yourself and came to earth 
in the form of man and died for us. Died so that we may have everlasting life. So that we have an inheritance in heaven. And we have been given a family of believers. Dear God, you're so good to us. We don't deserve it. But even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our brokenness, dear God, you love us deeply and you empower us with your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that if anyone is here that does not know you, Lord Jesus, Lord, I pray today is that day of salvation. But also pray for the Christians and my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, Lord, if there's unrepentant sin, Lord, I pray you give them the, the courage and the boldness to expose it call it out, and to remove it from their life. And I pray that you don't let us go a day without deeply pursuing the love that you've given us. God, we love you and we thank you for everything you've given us, everything you've provided here at Risen Life. I pray you keep us safe until we come here again. It's your holy and precious name we pray. All right.